Well, good morning again. I guess there's not anyone in Waterloo, probably in Monroe County, that doesn't know that the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Waterloo has got the lead role in Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, and the clean-shaven face and everything, you know, just kind of points to that. But as I was thinking this morning about the text that we're going to be looking at, that you just heard read, this beautiful text from Second Peter chapter 1, and by the way, while I'm saying this, if you want to grab your Bible or your electronic device or the little yellow paper in your connections and uh, find this text, that'll be great. But as I was thinking about it, my mind drifted to this, to this play that I had been working on now for, gosh, a couple of months. And this concept of a hound that has been, uh, no pun intended, dogging the Baskerville family since 1742, as I say in my kind of overdone Irish accent. And... Um, what an image that is of what happens in our lives. The ancestor of this family um, has been uh, an evil man. He was a villain, villainous kind of a guy. And this hound chased them down. And um, I thought about our lives and how often we are dogged by guilt, by shame, I regret over things that happened in the past. And then I thought about Peter, the man that wrote these two letters and how that was so true in his life. I mean, think about it. When he was uh, confronted by Jesus about denying him, and Peter said, oh, I'll never do that. And then he did it three times. And afterwards, it says in, chapter, in Luke that he went out and wept bitterly. He was overcome with guilt and remorse and shame over what he had done. And yet now, in his old age, he has worked through that. He has found victory, and he wants them, the people that he's writing to, and us to understand that we don't have to live dogged by those feelings of guilt and shame, the sin that besets our lives. And so as he starts this second letter, he talks about that. And I want us to, to think through that as we look at the things that he has to say to us in this section of verses, starting at verse 3 and going down to verse 11. If you know anything about the letters in the New Testament, you, most of them start with some type of word of thanksgiving or an extended greeting. Peter doesn't do that. After his first two verses, he jumps right into the main theme that he wants to talk about. And that is their relationship with Christ and how to live out that relationship in a way that shows their faith and can help them to stand firm against false teachers that were going to come against them. I think it's fascinating that for 2,000 years, we have had to do our best to keep ourselves strong and resilient so that we can fight off false teachers that would try to distract us. Believe me, there are false teachers today. They're constantly trying to distract us from the truth of the gospel. So as we look at this passage, um, I want to look at really three things, um, because that's the way Peter lines it out. First of all, there's an assertion, and then there's an application to that assertion, and finally, he makes an appeal. All right? So let's start with that, all right? Let's go to verses 3 and 4 and talk about the assertion that Peter makes as far as their relationship with Christ is concerned. This is what it says in verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 1. 
His divine power, and I believe that his actually is Christ's. You, know, you can say, well, I believe it's God's. But back up earlier, he had just said that our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's identified Jesus and God as being one and the same. Maybe it doesn't really matter. But I think he's thinking about Jesus and his power, his resurrection power. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own, glorious, his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Now, I got to tell you, we could spend our entire half an hour just looking at those two verses, but I'm not going to do that, okay? But I do want to just kind of walk you through and see what Peter starts at the very beginning. Peter asserts for these believers, and he reminds them that God has given them and us everything that we need for our spiritual lives. We come to him with nothing of our own. The old hymn, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And so Peter says, hey, you need to understand that everything you have is from God. Everything that you have for life, for godliness, for holiness, for your Christian walk comes from God. His divine power. Now I got to tell you, that ought to be very comforting. Because when I look at my life and I think, man, if this depends on me, I'm already done for. I'm done for every day if it has to do with my ability and my own power to earn or merit God's love for me. That's what grace is all about. That unmerited, undeserved love that God gives us. So Peter says, really, there are two things here in these two verses that we have. First of all, we have the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ. That's right there in verse 3. It says, he has given us these things, life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us. The first thing we have from God is our knowledge of him. Now remember, that doesn't just mean knowing things about him. And that is one of the biggest pitfalls that sometimes people fall into. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone about their relationship with Christ, and they'll say, oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in this. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in all of these things, and that's good. We need to believe in those things, but that's where it stops. But you know, in the Bible, so often knowledge is equated with a relationship, and that goes all the way back to Genesis when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son. Well, that knowledge doesn't just mean, oh, I know you, you're Eve. It means they had an intimate relationship with one another that bound them together. That's the knowledge that Peter is talking about. So the first thing we have there in verse 3 is we have a knowledge of him. The second thing we have is kind of embedded in verse 4, and that are these great and precious promises. See what he says in verse 4? It says, by these, the life and godliness that you have, he has given us very great and precious promises. Now, what are those promises? Well, it's all the promises that we see throughout the Old Testament. The promises of life, the promises of a relationship with God, the promises that he would walk with us, the promises that he would be there for us in our sin, the promise that he would forgive us, the promise that he would be a father to us, all of those things. So it's not like we get new promises the thing he gives us is the assurance that those promises are being fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled in our lives. And as through, it says, 
we may share in the divine nature. In other words, we don't receive a divine nature. We don't become gods, but we participate in God's nature. When we surrender our lives to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in, he dwells in us, and that nature, that divine nature, that godly nature, then begins to mold us and shape us and form us into the people that God wants us to be so that we can, in the verse 4, escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Isn't it wonderful? You know, you've heard me say many times that in the Bible we have what we call the already and the not yet. And you see that when you begin looking for it, you see it over and over and over. Peter says, you've already escaped the corrupt direction that the world is going in. It is leading toward destruction. You have escaped that through surrendering your lives to Christ and becoming part of that family. But you're also in the process of continually escaping the corruption that is caused by your own evil desires. And so we have this wonderful promise that that divine nature that lives in us is moving in us and helping us to grow and develop and escape all of those things. Now, will we ever become perfect? Not in this life, but we have that to look forward to. That's that wonderful hope that lies out there in front of us. So right here in these two verses, we have this tremendous assertion that everything that we have, our life, our godliness, our relationship with him, all of those things are because of him. His power his calling, and then our response in knowing him, coming into a relationship with him, and seeing and trusting that the, that the promises that he has made to us will be fulfilled. Wow. We could stop right there with tearful thanks for all that God has done for us and in us through Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is now Peter takes and turns this conversation in a way that sometimes for us becomes so amazingly frustrating. And I don't want you to be frustrated by it, but I want you to see how these two elements play out. On the one hand, he's just said, everything we have is because of God. But look at what he says at the beginning of verse 5 as he makes this application. In verse 5, he says, for this very reason... In other words, for this very reason that you've been given all of these things, these great and precious promises, the divine nature, the freedom from corruption, life, godliness, you've received all of those things. So for this very reason, make every effort to do these things. Okay, I'm stopping and just staring at you for a second, like this. Because you've got, on the one hand, Everything you have is not because of anything you've done. It's all because of what God has done for you. So get yourself out there and get to work. <laughs> and it's like, how do those two things go together? Is it about God or is it about me? And of course, the answer is yes. It is all about God. But because of what he has given us, what he has done for us, our response is to get out there and be, one of the translations says, be earnest. There's that word again, that working hard because we believe that what we do makes a difference in our lives and to his glory. Why do we exist? We exist for the glory of God. Why do we get up this morning? 
so that we may bring glory to God? Why do we go to our jobs tomorrow so that we can honor God? Why do we share our life and testimony so that we can please and praise God and that he can get the glory in our lives? And so everything that we do, but we cannot just sit back from the moment that we surrender our lives to Christ until we are taken home to glory and say, I've got my ticket, I'm fine, I can just go and live at ease. He says, no. No, because of all you have been given in Christ, your responsibility is to work hard. And he gives us this list of eight qualities. Now, before I jump into them, because I don't have time to go into depth of all eight of them, but before I get into them, I want you to understand something. Some commentators say they believe there is a progressive link in this. And some say they think it's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. It's just a list of all of these things that should be seen in our lives. But let me tell you, Whichever one of those two you tend to fall on, there's one thing that every single one of them, and I believe with all my heart. So hear me say this now. Just stop whatever you're thinking and listen to this one sentence. This does not mean, Peter is not saying to us that you've got to get finished with this thing before you can go to this thing. And then you work on this one for 25 or 30 years, and when this one gets perfected, you go to work on this one. This list, whether it is a progressive list in the sense that they add like stair steps as you grow in your Christian life, or whether they're just a a collaboration of several qualities, there is nowhere where we get the idea that you must finish one before you can go to the next. So with that in mind, I want you to listen to the list with me. Look there at verse 5. So here's what we do. We make every effort to supplement our faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, Endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, let me just walk through those pretty rapidly, okay? It's interesting that he starts with faith and ends with love. I think if anything is important in this list, it's that. That those two words, faith and love, bracket this whole list. Our faith, not just the faith that had us surrender to Christ and become converted, but the faith that continues to carry us day by day by day as we live a life of faith with Christ. But in that, in that faith, we begin to exhibit goodness, the kind of virtue that shows that we are living a godly life. From that, we have more and more and more knowledge of how God works in our lives. The knowledge leads us to be more self-controlled, that fruit of the Spirit, that self-control that helps us to make wise decisions. From that self-control, we are able to endure when we are opposed. The endurance leads us to more and more godliness, more godlikeness in our lives. The godliness helps us to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter experienced that with Jesus. Remember when Jesus sat down with him and said, Peter, do you love me? He said, I want this relationship with you, Peter. I know that you denied me. And I have forgiven you for that, and I want us to live in fellowship together. And then that brotherly affection, that brotherly love, that Philadelphia kind of love leads then to true agape love, true selfless giving love. Those things all link together in our lives, and I personally believe that they are a collaborated list of qualities that we could easily write on a piece of paper or, you know, me and my three-by-five cards, a three-by-five card that you stick in your pocket and every day say, Lord, am I exhibiting these qualities in my life? And here's why I think that's important, because of what he says in verse 9. Oh, excuse me, verse 8 first. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you 
from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, do you notice how much Peter talks about knowledge? This is the theme of 2 Peter. We need to know Christ intimately. And, and beloved, if there's anything that I as your pastor, I as your shepherd can do under God's leadership to help us as a church is to grow in an intimate knowledge of Christ. And so Peter says, as you look humbly at your life, if you see these qualities, nascent as though they may be, but you see that they're there and you see that they are growing, that will help you to not be futile or empty or wasting your time day by day by day as you seek to honor and glorify God. Nor will you be unfruitful in your daily walk. I don't know about you. I do not want to live one day and get to the end of my day and say, you know what? I did absolutely nothing for Christ today. Nothing. I didn't even pray. I didn't even say one good word about him today. He said, Peter said, you will not be wasteful, useless, futile, empty, or unfruitful if you have these qualities. But look at the other side of the coin. Then in verse 9, the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. He says, listen, if you don't see these qualities growing in your life, you've forgotten what Christ did for you. And you've become blinded. Now, whether they are believers or not believers, I'm not sure. But I definitely think there's a line between what we profess we believe and how we live our lives. I was talking to a good friend the other day about that, about this struggle we have as Christians, as true believers in Christ, saying, I know that I say that I believe these things, and yet sometimes in my daily walk, I don't, I don't live out those things. And it burdened this person's heart that they had that struggle between what they say they believe and how they live their life. And that's exactly what Peter said. If you see that you're lacking these things, don't forget all that Christ has done for you and how much he has given for you so that you can build these qualities. But listen, if you don't hear anything else that I share with you today, I want you to understand one thing. Now hear me carefully. Living the Christian life is hard. And it's supposed to be hard. Nothing worth gaining is easy to gain. But it's the kind of hard that's the, the difficulty of constantly releasing ourselves into God's care, constantly releasing ourselves, surrendering ourselves to God's control, to the Spirit's leadership. It's not, I've got to use my effort and my strength and my power and my will. It's the difficulty of not grabbing the reins of our lives and leading our lives the way we would want them to go. That's what makes it hard. That's what leads us every morning before we give the kids the breakfast before they go out in the day, before we head to school, before we head to work to say, Lord, I want to live today for you. And so that leads me then to the appeal that he makes at the end of this section. Therefore, <laughs> here's that, that link, based on everything I've said, all that you've received from God, all the effort you need to put in to seeing that these qualities are growing in your life by constantly yielding yourself to his leadership. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. All right, now I've got to just say this. One of the things that we pastors have a hard time with is talking about make sure you're really a believer 
Because we feel like that will cast doubt into maybe a younger believer's mind. Maybe you're not, you know, you're still growing in your faith. You're fairly new in your faith. And, and I'm so afraid that if I say, now, you better make sure you're really a believer, that that will somehow or another cast doubt into your mind. But then when we begin to read the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, and especially the letters of Paul and Peter and James, you realize that they stress this over and over and over and over again. So why shouldn't we? Do you remember? Paul himself said, one of my greatest fears is that after I've done all this for you, I myself might be rejected. Now, please understand, this does not mean that we cannot know whether we're truly saved until we get to heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. We can have the confident assurance that in Christ, we are growing. What Peter is saying is, look at your life. Think about what you professed that you had surrendered your life to Christ, accepted him as the Savior and Lord of your life, and then look at how you're living. If those two things aren't in sync, one of two things is going to be true. Either you have drifted away from your original confession, and you need to surrender that, confess that, ask God to forgive you, and get pulled back in exactly the way Peter did. You've sinned against him. You've denied him. You've rejected him in a sense. You have forsaken him, and now because you see in your life those fruit aren't growing, you're convicted, and you need to come back and say, Father, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. I forgot all that you've done for me. Or, or you have not truly done what you professed. Oh, you believe in God. You believe in Christ. You believe in his death and resurrection. You believe he died for the sins of the world, but you've never turned that from believing those things about him into surrendering your life to him. And it may very well be that you have a profession without a confession. You have a profession of faith. You have a statement that you've made, but you don't have the reality in your heart. Only you can answer that. It is not my place to judge you. It's not my place to say, I think that you're a, a, a Christian or not a Christian, but you have to look at your life. And so Peter says, listen, make sure of your calling and your election. And then he finishes by saying, for in this way, by responding to God's call in your life and surrendering in obedience to him, in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly supplied to you. He said, when you look at your life and you say, I know I've trusted Christ as my Savior, but I also know that these qualities are not growing in my life. And I know why. Because I live like a lost person. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. I don't live like a believer. And I need to confess that. I need, maybe with tears, to ask God to forgive me, to ask Jesus to forgive me for being unfaithful to him and coming back around. Peter says to his recipients of this letter, and he says through them to us, listen, everything you need for the new life for godliness has been given to you through the knowledge of God and the promises he has given. His power has enabled you to respond in faith. Now, you need to be working every day to surrender your life so that these qualities, these godlike qualities, these divine qualities can grow in your life. And if you look at your life and they're not there, it could be that you've been blinded by your own sin and now you're hounded, just like Peter was, by guilt and shame 
And you are constantly being chased by the devil. Try to lose your effectiveness for Christ. So Peter says, hey, sit down in a quiet place. Make your calling. Make your election sure. So that you can go out tomorrow boldly, courageously, standing for Christ. Getting those looks like they gave Jesus. Like, what? When you stand for him unashamedly, courageously, fiercely, strongly, knowing that those qualities are growing in you. And so that's my challenge to you today. If there's a hound that is chasing you, a hound of guilt, a hound of shame, you call yourself a good Christian and look at what you did, you need to remind yourself, this is not about my ability. It's about what Christ did for me. His power, his divine goodness is what has done this in my life. Confess that sin. Confess that life that's been displeasing to him. Get yourself back in line again with living for his glory, speaking for his glory, acting for his glory, surrendering your life so that he can get glory in you and through you. And if, beloved, by some chance, you're struggling right now with saying, I know what I said, but to be honest, I never really surrendered my life to him. I just believed in him, but I never really turned control of my life over to Christ. Then today would be the day for you to do that. So as you walk through that process, I want you to know that even though I'm going to be out of town for the next few days, my phone will be on. And you can text me, you can call me, you can email me and say, Steve, we've got to talk. As soon as you get back into town, we need to talk because I've got some things I need to get right in my life. It doesn't even have to be me. It can be Pastor Darrell. It can be one of our deacons. It can be your Sunday school teacher. It can be just a brother or sister in Christ. But make sure that, you get, that you're getting these things right in your life. Don't go out there and let that hound continue to chase you. You'll never outrun it until you kill it. And the only way to kill it is through the power of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you that we do not have to rely on our own goodness to be able to earn our salvation. There are literally billions of people on this planet who are adherents to religions that are based on us working our way into your good favor or whatever God they worship. Constantly fulfilling five pillars or seven truths or 12 steps or nine ways constantly trying to earn their goodness and earn their God's favor. But Peter has taught us so clearly, Father, that everything that we need has been given to us by your power, knowledge of you, your promises, your calling. So, Father, as we look at our lives and as we respond to what you have done for us by working on these eight qualities in our lives. And this isn't an exhaustive list. There are many other qualities that we know you are building in us. Help us 
If we see those qualities to continually surrender ourselves day by day by day. And whenever that hound of guilt, that hound of shame, that hound of regret and remorse tends to bay at our doorway, that we can remember that we've been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And for those of us, Father, who right now are being dogged by the guilt of knowing that we've not been developing those qualities in our lives, even though we accepted Christ as our Savior, maybe years ago, and yet we've not seen growth in our spiritual life, help us to run to you because you are the only one that can defeat that enemy. We can't do it ourselves. And Father, if there's anyone in the beacon today, any one of us that is this morning questioning whether they truly have surrendered their lives to you, whether they're living on a profession without a confession, I pray that today would be the day that they say, I have to make a change. I have to surrender my life to Christ so that he can be my Lord and my Savior. To that end, Father, work in our hearts even as we come now to the table. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Before I turn things over to Pastor Darrell, I just want to say one thing about what we're about to do. You know, there are many names for this table that we're about to celebrate. We in the Protestant church tend to call it the Lord's Supper or um, the communion table. Um, Some denominations call it the Eucharist. That word Eucharist, though, is a good word because it really means thanksgiving. And while the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Jesus' body and blood that was shed for us, and there's, there's sadness in our hearts over our sin and his need to pay that price. There's fellowship as we each take the bread and the cup and share it together. There's also that tremendous sense of thankfulness. And I think based on the text we've had today, that should be the emotion that we carry as we take that little piece of bread, that little bit of juice, remind ourselves of what Christ did for us and respond with two words. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this. Thank you, Father, for sending him. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing life into my heart and my life. Thank you, church, for giving me a place where I can grow and learn. Thank you. So as Daryl comes, as the deacons come, as you take the bread and the cup, as I'm doing that here in the sanctuary at the same time, may we be one family in our thanks to Christ for all that he has done for us. So God bless you. Take the bread, take the cup, and give thanks.